genealogies, or at least DNA testing, seem to be all the rage today. I guess everyone wants to know where they came from. So you can go to any number of websites, MyHeritage, AncestryDNA, 23andMe, kind of cute, order the kit, provide a blood or saliva sample, and for about 100 bucks, you can know your genetic heritage. <laughs> but nobody really cares except you. Uh, but I guess it's kind of fun. Uh, even genealogies, which give the family tree more than just genetics, but actual names may be interesting, but they're a little like home movies. Nobody really cares about them except the people who are in them. Have I shown you pictures of my grandkids lately? <laughs> my dad always told us we were Scottish. In fact, I thought I was, I did some research one, I thought I was part of the Ross clan. I even had a tie um, with the Ross clan tartan, you know, that's that Scottish plaid. Mine happened to be uh, red and green. I bought it in Nova Scotia, New Scotland. Then I found out at Thanksgiving, not making this up, just two weeks ago, one of my sons did a DNA test. Not a drop of, being, uh, of Scottish blood. <laughs> About 40% Irish. Do Irish and Scots even like each other? And no, I'm not changing my name to O'Charlie. And yes, I threw the tie away. Of course, even better than DNA testing is having your uh, family genealogy, your family tree. You might find it in the front of your grandmother's family Bible. Again, nobody really cares unless you have someone important in your tree. <laughs> but just fair warning, if you go to the trouble of research, you could find out that you're the great-great-grandson of Jack the Ripper. <laughs> in other words, it could be famous or make you infamous. My brother-in-law once got into family genealogies, did a lot of travel, interviewed family members, filled out the tree. It didn't really change their lives, but I guess it was a fun hobby. No one has actually done it on my side of the family, and now who cares since I'm not Scottish? And I can't have William Wallace or John Knox in my tree. <laughs> I say all that to say this. I have some good news and some bad news today. The good news is this. Unlike last week where we covered two whole verses in Luke chapter 3, this week we're going to cover 16 verses and actually finish the chapter. <laughs> and the bad news is <laughs> it's a genealogy of 77 names. I'm thinking about covering them one at a time. <laughs> it's not really bad news. It's the family tree of Jesus, which actually is of eternal significance. Why? Because if he did not have this family tree, then he could not be the Messiah. He could not save us from our sin. In other words, these 77 names prove that he is fully qualified to bear our sins and listen, and bring us, as it were, <laughs> into God's family tree. That's the important family tree, by the way, to be part of God's family, which means this is a family tree in which we should all be most interested. So, you ready? Let's read it. 77 names. I practice. Luke 3, verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of 
Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, unless that's Yoda, that'd be interesting. <laughs> the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosom, the son of uh, Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Amelia, the son of Amena, the son of Matatha, the son of... Uh, Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, finally names we know, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Nikainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jerah, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Were you moved? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to outline a genealogy, or better yet, how to preach it. So I will simply make some observations, hopefully important ones as we study, listen, our Savior's ancestry, which again is of eternal significance. Now, before we actually get into the genealogy, Luke says Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. That's kind of interesting and actually important. You see, priests in the Old Testament began their ministry when they turned, you guessed it, 30 years of age. It was then that you were thought you were old enough, that you were old enough, wise enough, mature enough to fulfill priestly duties. Kind of interesting. We turned 30 and we thought life was over. <laughs> This is when life began for them. So also Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. In fact, Hebrews says Jesus is our great high priest. So when he reached the age of 30, he was ready to fulfill the role. Further, he was the son of David, as we will see in this genealogy. In fact, he is the greater David, the one who would sit on David's throne forever, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so it's interesting to note, King David began his reign when he was... Say with me, 30 years of age. Further, the great Old Testament prophet Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry when he was 30. The point being, we see three Old Testament figures or roles, prophet, priest, and king, who began their roles at this pivotal age. Oh, and by the way, Joseph of the Old Testament, Joseph in the book of Genesis, the one uh, the brothers had sold into slavery in Egypt. The one who ended up being uh, the savior of the family became prime minister of Egypt when he was 30 years of age. It's all kind of interesting. It, there seems to be little left to chance in Scripture. Kind of intriguing to me. So Jesus entered his ministry at about 30. Now remember, I suggested that he was born between 4 and 6 B.C. Had to be since Herod the Great was still alive, and he died in 4 B.C., meaning the year now is about 26 A.D., give or take a year or two. Remember also, just last week, we saw that Jesus was baptized, inaugurating or anointing him into ministry. You see, the sun begins to set on John, but now it rises most brilliantly on Jesus. 
Jesus' baptism affirmed that John's ministry was divinely appointed, signaled that Jesus was ready to fulfill the duties of his office. It set an example of obedience for us. And by his baptism, Jesus was fully identifying, don't miss this, with the sinful humanity he came to save. Although remember, he had no sin. So he's he's ready to enter his public ministry. But Luke wanted to prove that he was fully qualified to do so. That is, that he's qualified to be the Messiah. It's one reason, by the way, that we spent so much time on John the Baptist to demonstrate that John was the forerunner as prophesied by Isaiah and Malachi. You see, in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to have a forerunner, you know, to announce the kingdom of heaven was at hand because, well, the king was here. It's also why Luke spent so much time in the announcement and the birth of Jesus. You remember Gabriel told Mary, the virgin, that the child to be born would be son of the most high God and that he would sit forever on David's throne. Then at his birth, the angel declared, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yeah, well, then at his baptism, Jesus was filled by the Holy Spirit, empowering him for ministry, and he was endorsed by the Father, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So now it seems all is ready. He is prepared to take on the mantle of his responsibility. But Luke has one more proof to offer, and that is the genealogy of Jesus. You see, in order for him to be the Messiah, he had to be the son, that is, the descendant of Adam, that is, human. He had to be the son of Abraham, that is, a Jew, because the promise was made to Abraham that through one of your descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he had to be the son of David to sit on his throne. So while genealogies are a bit of a novelty, maybe even a curiosity for us, like individually, the rest of us don't care. For Jesus, it was an absolute necessity. Now, you should know that the Jews kept meticulous records of the births of their children. For one reason, the ownership of land was determined by genealogy. And we know that the land was divided according to tribal ancestry. Uh, and you'll notice with the New Testament that several people who were named, Simeon, Anna, even the Apostle Paul, they know their ancestry. Further, to be a priest, you had to come from the priestly line. To be the king, you had to come from the tribe of Judah. And to be the Messiah, you had to come from the line of David. Now, you, you may know that Matthew, switching gears for just a moment, Matthew began his gospel uh, with the genealogy of Jesus as well. His purpose in writing his gospel was to demonstrate that Jesus was a son of David and therefore he was the rightful king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. That's the theme of the book of Matthew. But there is a bit of a problem and I need to acknowledge that at the outset. You see, Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy are different. Dare I say, contradictory. Now, to be sure, there are differences in both the extent and the direction of the lists. Meaning, for example, Matthew's list descends from Abraham down to Jesus and only has, here's the extent, 42 names. 
Again, don't miss it. Matthew's purpose was to demonstrate that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. That that is, he was a Jew and a descendant of Abraham. And by the way, he was of the right tribe, the line of the tribe of Judah. And he was also of David's line, necessary for him to fulfill the prophecy again in 2 Samuel 7. Which is why Matthew introduces his gospel and his genealogy with these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. These first words of Matthew. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Two very important and, in fact, required names in this family tree. Of course, Luke includes those names as well. However, Luke's genealogy ascends from Jesus all the way back through David, all the way back through Abraham, and all the way back to Adam. Again, 77 names. Now, Matthew had 42. That's not necessarily a contradiction, nor is the direction a contradiction. It's just to note a couple of differences. One ascends, the other descends. One starts with Abraham, goes to Jesus. One starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to Abraham. So we could ask the question, why? But I'll save that for the end. Because you see, there are some other differences that are seeming contradictions. It's actually why I asked Hunter to sing Matthew's genealogy, quite certain when you heard the names from the song that he sang and the names that I read, you would have noticed the problem right away. You did, right? (laughs) You see, right off, Matthew lists Joseph's father, Jesus's grandfather, as Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, uh, who was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. It seems quite clear that Matthew is saying this is Joseph's line, a legal line, because Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father. So it's his legal line. But then upon close examination, we see that Luke says that Joseph's father, Jesus' grandfather, paternal grandfather, was a guy named Eli, or Heli, depending on the spelling. Wait, 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 wait. Who was Jesus' grandfather? Was it Jacob or was it Eli? Got a problem. Oh, and the names from Joseph back to David are quite different. Now, the names from David to Abraham, uh, going further back, are all the same. And we've seen that uh, Luke goes from Abraham all the way back to Adam. And those two sections of the genealogy, um, uh, from David to Abraham and from Abraham to Adam, are you taking notes? Match the genealogies found in Genesis and uh, 1 Chronicles. But, again, we have a significant problem. What are we to do with this apparent glaring discrepancy from Joseph to David. I'm sure some of you have had philosophy of religion classes which highlight these differences to prove that there are, yes, I know, there are errors in the Bible. What to do with that? Abandon the faith? They hoped so. But maybe, just maybe, there is another plausible explanation. Let me just stop right here. I got an email uh, from Emily Harris. I didn't even ask her permission. Is she in here? Is Emily in here? Yep. I got an email from Emily. She's right back there. 
Yeah. And uh, she, told, she mentioned to me that she had just written, she's in seminary, and she had just written a paper uh, discussing these two genealogies. I'm going to tell you, it's one of the best papers I have ever read, much better than the commentaries. It was fantastic. And I'm sure if you would like to read it, um, she would be happy to send that to you. It is really, really, really good. And she explains it quite well. Now, through the centuries, scholars have tried to explain um, the difference, and they largely boil down to three legitimate explanations. I'm going to explain this to you. If you don't find it interesting, could we put the fire up so people could go to sleep? <laughs> Kidding. Don't, please don't do that. <laughs> We're talking 77 names, no fires. Um, they, they have tried. To, I, I want you to understand this because there are legitimate explanations. The first suggestion says that the two genealogies are actually Joseph's, but one recognizes that there was a leveret marriage or two in the line. What is a leveret marriage? Well, if a brother died without offspring, it was the living brother's responsibility, or perhaps another close relative, like think Boaz and Ruth, um, to marry the widow and provide an heir in the dead brother's or the dead relative's name. It's called a leveret marriage. It was a common practice. And so early in church history, I think by the third century, a guy named Africanus, if I remember Emily's paper uh, right, it was supposed that this is actually what happened. Thus, you have two different family lines. The only problem with this idea is there is not a shred of evidence to support it other than that it was a common practice and the fact that we have two significantly different family lines trying to explain it. I don't really think that's legitimate, but it's possible. Another commonly and fairly widely held position is that we have, that both lines, again, are Joseph's lines, but they are different because one is a legal or a royal line listing the kings in Matthew coming down to David, and one is the actual biological line. In other words, could have been this way if you married a widow with a child. It was the practice to adopt her son. And so, for example, it was suggested that one or the other was Joseph's biological father and the other is his adopted father. Further, Matthew lists the royal line as it continued, as it would have continued, and Luke, the biological line. It all gets a little bit complicated. It's further interesting to note that one line, the one in Luke, does not list all of the kings. You got David. But Matthew's, all of the kings, good and bad, in the line of um, Joseph. That's Matthew. Luke doesn't list them. In fact, the names in Luke's line are rather common, they're kind of unknown. Except they're here in the genealogy. Most of the names do not even appear in Scripture at all. When I said that I was going to cover them one at a time, I might have, except there's nothing about them. We don't even know who they are. So it is suggested while the legal line meets the necessary qualification that Jesus be in David's line, the biological line meets the same qualification without the baggage of all the ungodly kings. It just contains the names of regular Joes, of everyday people that Jesus came to save. It's a strong possibility, and it would seem to fit Luke's purposes very well. 
I think it's very possible. But there is a third position, which is still widely held, which does not require a lot of supposition. It goes like this. Are you ready? You've probably heard it. The genealogy in Matthew is Joseph's line, but the genealogy in Luke is Mary's line. How many of you have ever heard that before? Yeah, most of you. Uh, this would easily explain why they are different. If they were the same line, one was Mary's and one was, and they were the same line, then they would have been brother and sister. That's a problem. But don't miss it. it. Both lines of necessity go back through David and to Abraham. And Luke might be tipping his hat to this when he writes, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed the son of Joseph. But of course, he wasn't because of the virgin birth, the son of Eli or Heli, and so on. Now, the primary objection to this idea is that you normally did not have uh, family lines listed through the women, rather through the men, to which I say, well, you don't normally have a virgin birth either. (laughs) Plus, remember, as we have seen, Luke makes much of women, so I don't think it would be unusual for him to have Mary's line. Here's something else very interesting for you to consider. I'm almost done with this scintillating information. If you go back to Matthew's genealogy, in verse 12, it says this, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Does that bother anybody? It should. It actually should. Because Jeremiah chapter 22 says that although Jeconiah is in David's line, quote, no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And yet, Jesus, or at least Joseph, was in that line in Matthew's gospel. This curse would have precluded the right for Jesus to rule as king if Joseph had been the natural father. But while Jesus' legal descendant came through Jeconiah and Joseph, his blood descent, and thus his right to rule, came through Mary and not through Jeconiah. If you look at the genealogy in Luke 3, the line is not traced through Solomon and the subsequent kings to Jeconiah, but through Nathan, another son of David. You pick. Lots of reputable scholars stand with either the second or the third of those options. In fact, it's probably weighted two-thirds Mary, one-third the second option. Whichever, I'll let God's revelation in the future in heaven deal with the issue. The point is there are credible explanations for the differences. There's no reason to read these and be bothered and think that we have an error in the Scripture. In fact, um, let me go ahead and quote Emily's paper at the conclusion of of her work. Regardless of one's position... The message is not ultimately about Joseph's, about who Joseph's father is, but that theologically Jesus is the son of David, son of Abraham, that's in Matthew, and the son of God, which is in Luke. The, the apparent, and I add the word apparent, inconsistencies in these genealogies do not negate the overall message of the Bible, and the name of Joseph's father does not actually change anything about the kingdom that Christ came 
to bring. Amen. That's right. It's not a problem. Just because it appears as a contradiction doesn't mean that it actually is. There are lots of credible explanations for it. And so, I conclude this morning that there are several important things I want you to notice about Luke's genealogy. First, as I already mentioned, while there are many names that we recognize, right? Like Joseph and Zerubbabel and David and Jesse and Boaz and Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, Methuselah, Enoch, Seth, Adam, and hopefully God, there are lots, especially from Joseph to David, that we do not recognize. There are names not otherwise found in Scripture. That's incredibly interesting. They're common names, like yours and like mine, representative of all kinds of people that Jesus came to save. Because you see, we are finding that Jesus is not so much impressed with that which impresses us. He came to save the the weak, the lowly, the marginalized, the unknown. He came to save people who needed a Savior, who knew that they would not make it without Him. In a sense, Jesus' genealogy is just like ours. Lots of unknown names but lots of very needy people. Oh, and don't miss this. Luke, a Gentile author, did not stop at Abraham. He went all the way back to Adam to demonstrate that Jesus is the Savior, not just of the Jews. He is the Savior of all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. This is one of Luke's favorite themes, as it ought to be ours. Next, this genealogy is admittedly unusual. What do I mean? It is the only one that we know of in biblical or extra-biblical literature that goes all the way back to God. Adam, the son of God. Now, why is this important? There is a sense in which Luke is affirming both the... Remember, this is Jesus' genealogy. He is affirming both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Again, this is Jesus' family tree, and he is ultimately the son of God. His humanity is seen in that he comes from a long line of people all the way back to that first person, actually people, Adam and Eve, by the way, just like all of us. We all share that in common. You see, while many want to trace their DNA ancestral origins to discover what ethnicity, what race, what people they come from, the truth is, without minim- listen, without minimizing any race, that's not my intent, There is actually only one race, and it is called the human race. Because if we could somehow trace our DNA origins, everyone in this room would trace them back to the same set of parents. I I, I find that incredibly encouraging and challenging at the same time. That's why I've never done a DNA test. I know where I came from. I know where you came from too. But there is, there was something unique, unique about Adam and Jesus that's unlike the rest of us. Both were created outside normal biological function, which, w- which uh, was set in motion with that first couple. Note, 
Adam was created by God from the dust of the ground, and God breathed into him the very breath of life. Now, to be clear, he was not divine, but he was created by divine fiat. Jesus also, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, was born by a creative act of God, 100% God, having been created by the work of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also had to be human in order to be Savior. That's why Hebrews writes, since the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, it was necessary, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those through, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all, their, all of their lives. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." That means by divine act, God created the human race through one man, and by divine act, God made salvation possible for the human race through one man. This is highly theologically significant, which leads to the final thing that I will say about this genealogy. Some would suggest that Luke does not, did not have this particular point that I'm about to make in mind, but how could Luke spend so much time with the Apostle Paul and not have it in mind? You see, there is a significant similarity between Adam and Jesus. Again, Adam was created by direct act of God, and further, he represented, it's called the federal headship. He represented the whole human race. You know the story. When Adam sinned, we all did, and Adam died, and we all will. He represented us and failed, and so we have inherited the sin nature of Adam. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. And so, we were in need of a second Adam to represent us, to take our place, who would not fail, which I think is why this genealogy appears right before the temptation narrative that we're going to look at next week. You see it? Jesus was tempted by Satan and did, just like the first Adam was, and did not fail. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. Listen to what he wrote that Luke, no doubt, I think, had in mind. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We inherited the sin nature from that one man. His name was Adam. And we've all are, we are all sinners by nature and by choice. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Notice that is absolutely necessary in order for this salvation to occur. Receive those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. They will reign in life through the one, 
Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even as through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. So I am suggesting that Luke went all the way back to Adam because Adam represented all people. He represented all of us. And in his failure, we all became sinners. So there was need for a second Adam who would not fail, who did not fail, who never sinned and represented all people. And through the death and resurrection of the one man, by grace through faith, the many, having received it, the many will be made righteous because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, it's an incredible, it's an incredible text we read through it. I suspect that most of us in our Bible reading, we get to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. We read verse 23 and then drop down to chapter 4. And yet it is an, it's your word. And these, these names are inspired by you. And they're given for our understanding. They're given for our teaching so that we can understand that Jesus was the son of David. Further, he was the son of Abraham. Further, he was the son of Adam because he represented all humanity, as did Adam. But he never failed because he was further the son of God. And we thank you as we remember that today. In Christ's name, amen.